Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Andre from the Opinionated Podcast, and I just want to remind you that we are live every Sunday on our Facebook page, and you can find us wherever you stream your music at the Opinionated Podcast. We drop a new episode every Tuesday. So remember to like, share, comment, and don't forget to subscribe. Enjoy the show. Today's sponsor is brought to you by the Ladies at Ideas Unlimited. You got a birthday party you need thrown? Maybe a baby shower, a wedding party, a divorce party. These ladies got everything you need. They make everything custom to your liking, centerpieces, backdrops, the custom balloon arches. You need a thrown chair? They got you. You want to look fly on the 360 booth? They got you. They also do custom treats. You want a bag of Doritos with your face on it? A Snicker bar with your face on it? They got you. Hit these ladies up for all your party needs. They're on Facebook and Instagram. I Diz Unlimited. This is the opinion of the podcast. We never do anything professional, but these ladies so, do. You know what I mean? We back at the opinionated podcast. We are here. Um, we got a guest today, Aaron Showtime Taylor. Uh, he's a broadcaster, um, humanitarian. Also, you know, he did some time in uh, prison, 26 years. We're going to get into all of that, get into all his backstory and everything like that. Like I said, Everybody knows this podcast. We just we like to chill. Anything goes. There ain't no language barrier. You can say whatever you want, but you know what I'm saying? I just want to start off, you know, where you from and, and and where you grew up at. So that's the first question I want to get out so everybody know where you came from. Yeah, I'm from, I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, you know what I'm saying, on the west side, uh, over off of Jefferson and Arlington. Uh, what's now called Jefferson Park, but it used to be just outside the Crenshaw District, right outside Baldwin Hills, you know, um, born in 1965, you know what I'm saying? And and uh, I just turned 58 years old in November. Wow. So what was so what was Cali like back, I guess you growing up in the 70s? Like, what was it like, you know what I mean, before the 80s hit? So in the 70s, you know, we were coming out of uh, the Black Panther movement, right? And the Crips and Bloods was just really getting established, right? And so um, I actually remember I was like three years old, three or four years old when the uh, LAPD and the Black Panther Party had a shootout up on what used to be, it was now called Martin Luther King. It used to be Santa Barbara and uh, Second Avenue. And I definitely remember hearing the bullets firing back and forth uh, back then. And uh, when I started going to elementary school, um, that was 1970, right? 69, 70. I went to Alta Loma Elementary, went to uh, Queen Anne Elementary, and then eventually the 36th Street School. And so there was a lot of pro-Blackness going on back then. You know, we learned what's now called the Black National Anthem, Young, Gifted, and Black. You know, um, everything was coming off of the Black Panther Party. So the free lunch, uh, the free lunch program at school was was just implemented and whatnot. You know, um, we had a lot of black teachers in South Central. Uh, that's the general area where I lived at. And uh, the Crips and Bloods were just getting started, like I said. So it was a lot of it was a lot of gang banging going on, but not like it grew to be in the eighties. So that's the thing. Out now, from what I read on the seventies from the 70s Crips and Bloods, they were just meant to, like, I guess, protect the neighborhood. It wasn't all that, you know, Bloods hated Crips, Crips hated Bloods. It was just, they were just there to set up to protect the neighborhoods. Am I wrong in saying that? No, not really wrong. You know what I'm saying? You had East Side, West Side, Compton, and Watts. You know, it really wasn't a big breakdown. That didn't come till later, right? Um, 
And like I said, I grew up as a kid, you know what I'm saying, in the uh, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh grade, kind of watching that evolve and then eventually getting involved in it myself. Mm. Okay. So, yeah, so that will lead to the 80s. Now I'm a nineties uh, baby and I just remember watching I'm on the we on the East Coast. So we would see these right. movies on the West on the West Coast and was like, yo, like is it really that crazy just walking outside if you had the wrong color going on to a store? I'm like That's what they told well, us. Well, be, yeah, to us it to us it was yeah. like, yo, you can't wear blue over there, red. Yeah, you like, had to was, be careful of what you wore for sure. So was it yeah, really definitely. like that over there? Yeah, yeah, definitely. If you was if you was a crip, you was wearing blue. If you was a blood, well, back in the seventies, bloods wore blue khaki suits, but they was all trimmed in red, right? The the burgundy thing didn't really get implemented until the late seventies, early eighties, right? And then it depended on uh, what neighborhood you was in, right? Because like I said, they had um, we were going to school. You guys are asking me to remember back, man. We going back to the seventies now. Yeah, um, I, I was all, getting I was getting bused to school going to Northridge Junior High School, and I definitely remember uh, there was a gang over off of Imperial just on the west side, right? And they wore blue khaki suits trimmed in red, and then you had uh, the Crips who were on the bus with us because they all we all went to school together. Uh, they would wear blue khaki suits and whatnot, but now we were getting bused to the valley into an all-white neighborhood. So when we got on the bus and went out there, everything ended. It wasn't no Crips and Bloods. We were all black, Right going out there then on the way back home you know what i'm saying once we got uh, past a certain mark on the way home then it was like all right what's up cuz what's up blood you know that's what i mean it was it was a little different back in the 70s because this was when roots first came out right 1976 1977 so we were really really consciously about blackness even though we were gang banging back then man you know what and when it when it comes to that i'm sorry to cut you off kev when it comes to that like and we're and we're going to kind of jump around just a little bit when it comes to that blackness. I know I know we saw a bit of a clip of you on uh, <laughs> on, on, on TV. You on Dr. Dre's The Chronic album, a skit. Like, how did that transference come about? Like, how did that like being around the gangs and everything? Like, how did that like really push you to start really getting into like your your blackness, like our blackness, really? Um. I mean, it was instilled into us in, in elementary school. You know, every elementary school I went to, we were always taught about blackness, you know, and then Roots came out and that kind of like solidified it. You know, it, it ingrained it at that point because we had visuals, you know, in school you had the, you know, black people were slaves, the pilgrims came over, the Indians, that the, everything that they give you in the textbooks, you know what I'm saying? The Indians came and helped the pilgrims and then they broke bread together on Thanksgiving and black people were slaves and then they were free. But I'm living in history as well because, you know, uh, Nixon was president when I was going to school. You know what I'm saying? I was definitely remember the, uh, the impeachment of Nixon and then uh, Gerald Ford becoming the president and whatnot. And all during that time, you know what I'm saying? You had three or four different like major things going on. Like I said, the Black Panther Party had ended. The Crips and Bloods were coming in. And then you had the spirit of blackness going forward. And then you had roots come out. Right. So, like I said, we would get on the bus and knew that this was we was from this neighborhood. They was from that neighborhood. But once we got on that bus and went to school in the valley, everybody was black. So, you know, 
Now, speaking of that, when did you start noticing what you said was the change that came in the gang culture that it went away from the pro-black to now you're looking at another black man almost as the enemy? Like, when did you start seeing that change? That started happening when uh, drugs hit the community, when specifically cocaine. You know, when cocaine came out of Hollywood, you know, they were doing, uh, it was very expensive drug. You know what I'm saying? You had, it wasn't even in rock form. I don't think, I think they were still sniffing cocaine back then. Right. But when it started getting in the rock form and then you had some crews in Los Angeles. Right. Uh, and they started moving into neighborhoods and whatnot. Then once the money came in, then that's when it was about territory and uh, protecting your territory and protecting your uh your area where you were selling your drugs at. Mm. See that. So yeah, that's, that's wild, man, because that's what I saw. Like that's what I saw as a kid in the nineties is like, yo, why these dudes just hate each other over a color. But you, like you said, it's money, 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 make anything change and shit. So the big thing. I mean, and also, also you got to understand too, that when that happened, you also had the police would exploit those differences. You know, mm-hmm. they would exploit uh, Crips and Bloods and, and you know, drop. they would pick up Crips, drop them off in Blood Hoods, drop, pick up Bloods, drop them off in Crip Hoods. You know what I'm saying? Um, and with that going on, you know, it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to explain it to people who wasn't living it. But I think the best representation, uh, the best three movies that gave the best representation of it would be Boys in the Hood. Mm-hmm. Menace to Society and South Central. Favorite ones. Uh, my favorite. Those three. Those three movies. Matter of fact, Boys in the Hood was filmed in my neighborhood. I grew up on Jefferson and Arlington. Like I said, the scene where where uh, Doughboy drops off Trey at the bus stop. That was literally right around the corner from my house. I mean, like uh, one minute away from my house. You know, that bus stop was in front of a uh, holy name. Uh, Catholic church and we used to go over there and play basketball on the weekends and stuff so mm. that film uh, South Central and Menace to Society those movies are actually the closest to portrayal of what it was like growing up in the 80s into the 90s in South Central Los Angeles so you and this is you You said you was in the gang so when did you start to notice like you know that crime culture started picking up for you. When when did that shift for you particularly? Like, you know, you, uh, right. Well, see, it, again, I was gang banging, but I was also DJing. I was also working as a plumber when I was sixteen years old. Wow. You know, uh, a lot of. I mean, it was more than just gang banging. That wasn't our only thing to do. Yeah. You know, what I'm saying we sold weed in our neighborhood. You know, we DJed on the weekends. You know what I'm saying? There were other members of the gang that I was from that were all about gang banging. But on our side of, of my neighborhood, we were gang bang. We were selling drugs. We were DJing. We were B-boys. You know what I'm saying? Because rap started coming in as well. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And the B-boy culture started coming in. And Ice-T is from my neighborhood, right? He's about eight or nine years older than me. So this was somebody we used to look up to, Ice-T, uh, Fro- MC Frosty, and Super Love and C, the guys that made the radioactivity rap back in the early 80s. Right. So it wasn't just gang banging. So I had a, I had access to different forms and different types of what was going on in the neighborhood. And all of these evolutions 
were taking place simultaneously. When it came down to directly answering your question, it was more when the money started coming in and the money started growing, that's when the territorial stuff started coming in. You know, a person, I believe Freeway Rick just gave an interview on another podcast, right? And he would probably be the best person to ex- to answer that question when it comes to territory because the Freeway Boys, the Freeway Series yeah. Boys, they had it locked in at one point. Right. You had another crew. You had two other crews of Los Angeles, Whitey Enterprises, and I forget the name of the other one. But they started moving drugs into the neighborhoods and they started connecting with the gangs. And so then the gangs are protecting their territory. And so you get some cats with the mentality like, fuck this set, fuck this set. You know what I'm saying? We need our money. Right. And then that, you know, proliferates out into the neighborhoods and you get. Minister Society, South Central, and Boys in the Hood. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because when when crack when crack hit like on the East Coast and shit, you 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 can start seeing this shit. Like it just went it just went way crazy because my mom, she, you know, what I mean, my mom's from the eighties, so she's born in sixty five, and they and they used to talk about they used to freebase and clubs and everything like that. But when this shit when crack hit, it was like something different. It was like. It just fucked the neighborhood up. And also it was like the crime for having crack and having coke were like two different charges. One right. that gets you 99 years and the other might get you whatever. Maybe so a night first, in prison. Well, the first time I went to jail in 1984, it was because I started smoking cocaine, right? Freebasing, right? And um, me and my brother and a couple other guys, we was up high robbing all night long and got caught at six o'clock in the morning trying to rob a donut shop. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and the police are sitting right across the street watching like, what the hell is they doing? We, we, we high. We don't even, we ain't even tripping. You know what I'm saying? That a shift change. You know what I'm saying? And the cops are sitting over there watching it, let it go down. We get arrested, right? I ended up getting two years. My brother was younger than me. He went to juvenile camp, right? And so that was cocaine. When I came out, my brother got out before I did. When I came out, my brother was selling crack, right? And so I'm like, hey, man, you know, give, give me some of that. I'm going to roll it up with a joint, what we call primo, primos back in the day. And he told me, he said, man, this stuff is way more powerful than what we used to smoke. Oh, man, you don't know what you're talking about, man. Give me some of that stuff, man. Break this stuff up and put it up in there. Hit that and was like, oh, oh, no, you got to give me a whole blunt, right, by itself. And I smoked the whole thing just to come down. That's when I started understanding how powerful that stuff was. Right. Wow. In the movie uh New Jack City. Yeah. When G Money jumps in the car, right? With Nino Brown, he said, Man, they going crazy over this right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they was going crazy over it here on the West Coast too. The same type of thing. You know what I'm saying? The difference between cocaine and crack is what your mother told you. You know what I'm saying? Crack came in and it just, you know, it just grips you. You know what I'm saying? And it takes hold to you and it won't let go psychologically man you need you need time to psychologically download off of that stuff you know what i'm saying and what brought me to prison in 94 was in 92 i started smoking crack cocaine right Uh the only difference was in the 80s i was freebasing cocaine and that's all i wanted to do in the 90s from 92 to 94 when i was doing my crime spree i became what you call a functional crackhead you know what I'm saying? I'm robbing and stealing to get cracked, but I'm also paying my bills and doing everything else, right? 
I just accepted it for what it was like, Hey man, I'm a crackhead. I gotta, you know, I gotta have this and this is what I'm doing. Right. That's what led me to prison. And I understand it. Like everybody, I think that grew up in that era has a family member like that. And it's fucked up because what what fucks me up now is need some help. How much people doing heroin and dope now, how they got all these outlets and all these programs and they trying to help these people. But back in the eighties, when people were smoking crack, like I had family members that I loved that was doing stuff, and we and we would go to school and they got their dare dog. These people are bad. These people are no good. And I'm like, you know, what I mean, this person ain't no good. I love this person. This person when he sees me, he loves me, but they not labeling the sickness like they are now. But back then it was just like, yo, just lock them up and pull them the fuck away. You know what I'm saying? Well, in in '87, Senator Joe Biden literally had wrote a crime bill that Ronald Reagan, who was the president, was like, man, I'm not signing that. We'll never get any black votes if we sign that, right? Fast forward to 92, when Bill Clinton comes in, I think around 93, he gets into trouble, right? Here's Joe Biden again, sliding that crime bill up underneath him, right? And so just what you just said, instead of labeling it as a sickness, it got labeled as a criminal act, right? And so when they signed the 94 crime bill, right, it was the federal level and then the states followed up with theirs. So in California, we have what was called the three strikes law, right? Three strikes and you out, right? It was signed in March, 1994. I committed my crime on August the 25th, 1994. Damn. Right. So we talking like six months after it was signed in the law, you know, I get cracked. I go to jail after a shootout in the furniture store. And I'm thinking, you know, okay, I'm going to get five years or whatever. They like, no, nah, you facing seven life terms. I'm like, what? Damn. <laughs> Are you serious? Seven life terms, right? Now, mind you, I was on a crime spree right. from 92 to 94. You mind elaborating? So, because I want these young kids to hear this shit. You mind elaborating? on a crime spree and how serious this shit really is out there. Strike one, strike okay, two, so, three. Okay, so in nine, in 84, I had two counts of robbery that I pled guilty to. So that's one strike, two strike. In 94, I get arrested for attempted robbery and assault with a deadly weapon. That's what I actually pled guilty to. What I got arrested for was two counts of armed robbery and two counts of attempted murder because I'm in a furniture store trying to rob this furniture store, right? I was on a crime spree with the same gun. And so when I got arrested, the ballistics came in on the gun I had. So what I ended up having was two counts of attempted murder, two counts of kidnap, uh, uh, kidnap robbery, 12 counts of armed robbery, one count of attempted armed robbery, one count of assault with great bodily injury, one count of ex-con with a gun because I'd been in jail in the 80s, right? And then you added in all the enhancements from the three strikes law and each one of those carried 25 to life apiece. So when I, when they finally had all of the charges come in, right? I'm laughing now because I'm looking at y'all faces like, oh, That's hell crazy. no. We did not know he was going to come on and do this kind of interview. <laughs> Yo, that's, that's crazy. Crazy. Listen, well, hold continue. on, listen. So when all the ballistics came in and I'm facing 20 counts, right? And they're like, man, you 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 looking at seven life terms. I'm like, what? Are you serious? 
you know, and I had a crimey at the time, right? So what they did, they came back to me and was like, well, you know, if you tell us who your crimey is, you know what I'm saying? We we can break some of this down. Well, they didn't catch my crimey. They caught me. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know, they had videotape. They were showing me the videotape. I'm not telling on my girl. Are you crazy? You don't know. No, I, I did that by myself. Well, who's this girl with you? I don't know. I don't know who she is. You know, I got caught. I'm going to do the time for this. Right. And so what eventually happened, um, I had a lawyer who he was a, a, a public defender. Right. I'm trying to tell the lawyer, look, man, obviously I was crazy. Obviously, I was insane out of my mind doing all this stuff. Do you think you can get me, you know, life in the mental uh, hospital? Right. He wouldn't fight for me to do that. Right. So uh, eventually I ended up uh, defending myself. Now, how did I defend myself with all of this going on? Well, I created a personality to defend myself. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. Yeah. There we go. Absolutely. Hey. Because I'm crazy. <laughs> yeah. I, create, I created Sherwood McAllister, which was the name that I said I was when I got arrested. And he defended me and the rest of my personalities who was crazy enough to do the stuff that I got arrested for. Right. And so eventually through all of the games and everything else I tried to do. And they just, the law just like wore me down until I'm sitting in front of a DA and a ADA. And she's like, you know, what, 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 what are we going to do? Right. And so what she offered me was, she said, look, we'll drop 18 of these counts. You can plead guilty to the attempted robbery and we'll drop this great bodily entry down to assault with a deadly weapon. You get 25 to life for this 20, 25 to life for that. We're going to run that 50 to life, right? I've been fighting the case for two years in L.A. County Jail. I'm like, man, I started doing the math. I was 28. Damn, 50 years, man. I'll be 78 years old when I get out, right? But there was a part of me that was like, I got to take it because that's the best thing I'm going to get. You know, they was offering me, they were offered to do 20 years flat if I told, you know, on my girl. And I'm like, no, I can't do that. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm I'm not raised that way. I'm not built like that. You know what I'm saying? You caught me. Right. So uh, I definitely remember the day I went in. I said, well, can I can I at least call my mother? They said, yeah, you can call your mother. You know what I'm saying? You got 30 minutes. Go down to the to the bull, to the uh, to the tank. And then you're going to come back up and, and get this and get this time. And I remember calling my mother and, you know, my mother, you know, she was on drugs at one time and, and she raised me. My mother was a gangster, too. So it was my uncles, my grandmother, my grandfather. You know what I'm saying? They, I grew up in a family of gangsters, you know? So when I got on the phone and called her and told her, I'm like, look, I got to go take this 50 to life. She almost started crying. Hold it. No, you can't cry right now because I'm down here in this tank. If you start crying, I'm going to start crying. Right. You know what I'm saying? And, and a lot of these guys had watched me go back and forth to court, you know, and and knew me, right? And I'm like, I'm telling them, I, I can't fight no more. I got to go. I got to go take this 50 to life, you know? And that's what I went upstairs and did. I took the 50 to life and... The one thing I did, though, when I took the 50 to life, I I put it into the record that, look, in the future, if there's any changes or legislative legislative amendments to the three strikes law, that I should be able to file a habeas corpus and come back and get the time appropriate to an attempted robbery and assault with a deadly weapon, which was would have been about seven years. Right. I put that in the record. You know what I'm saying? I had no idea that, you know, years later that they was going to actually change the three strikes law. 
right? We'll get into that later on, right? Because it's a whole yeah. bunch of stuff going on in between. <laughs> well, what gave you the wherewithal to know, like, you know what? Yeah. Especially facing that amount of time to where most people's like, come on, I, I know people who went to jail, but not nearly is like that's that's a crazy amount of time. What made you say, you know what? I know my life is about to be over. I'm just I'm paraphrasing here. I know my life is about to be over for the time being. If they change this though, I want them to what gave you the wherewithal to do that? Like where did that come from? So now I had been in in jail in the LA County jail for uh over two years fighting this case. So I'm not hooked on drugs anymore. Right. Uh, you know what I'm saying? They don't have tobacco in there, but I'm I'm you know, we can get it in there. So I'm smoking, I'm smoking uh tobacco and weed. But I'm not trying to get no cocaine or nothing like that. So I'm healing mentally, right? My focus is coming back. And I'm like, man, you're right. My life is over. You know, the only thing that could possibly happen, I'll be 78 years old when I get ready to go to the board of prison terms to get out. Not get out, but when I get ready to go to the board, right? And so I'm like, if they change this law, because they were talking about changing it, every, you know, inside of jail, everybody got a rumor. Everybody got hope. They trying to keep hope alive Man, they think they're going to change it. We got one guy. He just filed a writ, you know, it made, it made it to the California Supreme court. You know, they about to change this law. So I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm like, man, and I'm fighting my own case. So I'm in the pro per module. So I have access to, to the law library as well. Right. And so I'm like, man, the only thing I could do is to just put this on the record. You know, and if I put it on my sentencing transcript, then hopefully one day, if they do change this law, I can pull this back out and say, okay, take me back to court and give me the amount of time for these two crimes that I'm pleading guilty to because the enhancements is what got me. Right? It wasn't so much the crimes that I committed, it was the enhancements that made the three strikes law go from three years for armed robbery to 25 to life. You know, four years for an assault with a deadly weapon to 25 to life, you know? So I had to, you know, I'm, I'm healing up mentally and all of this other stuff. And I said, okay, I got to put this in the record before I go to uh, go up to the state. Damn. I mean, thank God you did it, man. So. Well, no, that isn't what got me out. I know. I'm pretty sure. So. No, that isn't what got me out. <laughs> so let's, 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 let's get here. When you get finally you moving from the county jail, what was what was your feeling like when as you pulling up to now, which is a prison? Because people don't get it. Jail, jail and prison are two different things. Yeah, definitely. That what well, the LA County jail is a whole monster in and of itself. And I'll tell anybody this. I've heard about Rikers Island, right? Rikers Island and LA County Jail are on the same level that if you can do time in those two county jails, you can basically do time in any prison around the world. It was that bad in there? Like you got any oh you got any stories you mind sharing about about that your time in there? Man, if 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 you if you were weak, you were prey. I can see that. It's it's not even about where where, where you from or what hood you from or nothing like that. If you was weak, you was gonna get preyed upon period, point blank, you know? And like I said, I went to jail in the eighties in 84 and had a definite eye opening, waking eye opening experience on what it was like to survive in LA County jail. When I came out of the LA County jail and went to state prison from 84 to 85, I was a whole new person. 
You know what I'm saying? I went in, I was about 5'7", about 135. When I came out, I was 5'10". I was 165, cut up and everything, right? We went into training while we were in there, right? And we were trained to survive anything, anything. I mean, we were fighting the police. We were fighting uh, other gangs. We were fighting other races. You know what I'm saying? All of that was going on. So we were trained to survive anything, almost like military folks. You know what I'm saying? We would be cuffed up, getting beat up by the by the L.A. Uh, by the L.A. County sheriffs up in there. You know what I'm saying? Because somebody may have done something, and they were from a gang. Oh, you from a gang too? <laughs> And you cuffed up at the waist, cuffed up at the ankles, and you can't do nothing but take it. Ain't no yelling and screaming. Ain't no crying out. You know what I'm saying? You got to take that ass whooping. You know what I'm saying? And you come back, that was that. You know what I'm saying? They had what was called flashlight therapy. The deputies used to have flashlights. It was about this long, right? Flashlight therapy. They don't whoop your ass with them flashlights. Give you some forget-me-nots. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. You know? It's because. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of sexual assaults and stuff going on back then in the 80s as well. In the 90s, it kind of calmed down. Right. But the 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 racial stuff kicked in. You know what I'm saying? When I went to jail in the 80s, blacks and Hispanics, we were cool, tight. You know what I'm saying? Everything was great. You know what I'm saying? When I went to when I went back in the 90s. Right. Hispanics and blacks, there was a wedge there. There was a wedge between the Asians and the Hispanics. You know what I'm saying? There were green lights going everywhere on anybody at any given time. You know what I'm saying? And so if you was a nobody, if you didn't have, you know, your own personal respect, your own personal, you know, walking in and like, look, yeah, we know who this dude is. Yeah, you you was going to get tested, you know, and you had to be ready to fight at the drop of a dime. I don't care if you was dead asleep. You may have to come up out of your sleep swinging, you know what I'm saying, to defend yourself. But this is in the county jail system. When you get to the state system, specifically on the level four is where I went to now, the level four is where everybody had something to life, right? Level three and on the level fours, you know, when I first got there, the guys were in my age range, somewhere between 20 and 30, right? And I show up in the nineties, right? So you had some guys who had been locked up since the sixties and the seventies. They had B and C numbers. The first time I went to jail, I had a D number in the eighties. I gave them that number back. When I came in the nineties, I had a K number. Well, eventually the K numbers became old numbers, right? That's how long I stayed in. But the B and the C number guys were getting older and whatnot. So when I came in, you had um, uh, E numbers, K numbers. And so we became like the youngsters coming in and we all had something in life. So when you get to the level fours, it's more racial politics. You can't just go around fighting folks. You know what I'm saying? You have to, you better be seeking permission before you do anything to anybody, you can't just, you know, just go with anybody like that. So that part of it calmed down. And when you're on a level four prison yard, it's really like this. If it's not worth killing over, it's not worth arguing over. Mm, right. Because when violence takes place, it's extremely violent. Yeah. You know, people get hurt, people get stabbed, people get killed, you know, and guys who were in leadership positions on the yard, you know, they were responsible for those type of decisions. So they were real careful about, you know, what we going to war about, you know, and thankfully I was around a lot of guys who were thinking, right. Who didn't get us into stuff. 
you know what I'm saying, who wasn't leading us down the wrong path. Because by this time, I had become a Muslim in 1992, trying to get off of drugs when I first got on them, right? I took my Kalima Shahada on the street, but that didn't stop anything. I was like a Christian who just carried his Bible around, just, hey, you know, Jesus loves me and never read the book. I was the equivalent of that as a Muslim. I had the Quran, you know, yeah, it's all good. And I'm still smoking crack and stuff and ended up in prison. Right. But I happened to land on a yard where I could really get off into my religion, really start studying, you know what I'm saying? And so I started evolving that way. That was another step in my healing process because not using drugs for two years in the LA County jail was one thing, but now I'm on a state prison yard and I'm getting into a lane where it's like, okay, I need to start healing myself. Now, during all of this time from the LA County jail to state prison, I'm doing play by play for basketball. Yep. Yeah. So in the LA County jail, when we went to the rec yard on the roof, and then when I got to state prison, first person I went to was CSPLAC Lancaster here in Southern California. I go to the yard and I'm doing play-by-play for basketball. This is how so, I get popular. What, what gave you that idea to to actually pursue that, to be an announcer, to do the play-by-plays? So in 88, 89, uh, there was a, a park in Culver City. It was called uh, Overland Park. Now it's called Palms Park. And we used to go up there and play basketball all the time, right? Uh uh, ex-Laker, uh, Michael Knight, um, uh, Larry Spriggs used to be on the Lakers as well. You had guys like that that was up there playing basketball. My partner, Cordy Dillard, uh, Crenshaw High basketball star, Venice Beach basketball star. We would all go up there and play basketball. One day I twist my ankle and I caught a ride up there so I can't go home, right? So I go sit on the bleachers. I pop a Corona. I'm watching the basketball game. It's some music playing. And I just start imitating Chick Hearn, the late, great Chick Hearn, the voice of the Lakers, right? I mean, I was clowning. It was funny. You know what I'm saying? People laughing, joking like, man, this nigga's crazy, man. You hear it? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) This fool trying to imitate Chick Hearn, right? Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. 92, yeah, in 92, Crenshaw High School, one of my alumni, had uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s basketball games, stars from the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, right? So Marcus Johnson, a uh, former NBA player, graduated from Crenshaw High School. He was there. The guy who played the original uh, um, Chewbacca in Star Wars, he was an alumni of Crenshaw High School. He shows up to the game, right? Cordy Dillard from 1979 led the, uh, led Crenshaw to a city championship. He's playing. They're playing on the 70s teams. You had the 80s teams, Big John Williams, who played for the Washington uh, Generals, later the Los Angeles Clippers. He's part of that. Uh, my boy Greg Bag, Greg Bragg, he plays for the uh, for the uh, '80s teams, and I forget some of the guys from the '90s. I think Kevin Ollie was on there too. I'm not sure, but they're playing the game right. They play all day long, and they get down to the final right. And so, I grab the mic and I start doing it. I start doing the play by play. Coach Willie West comes over to me. You know, he's like, "Hey, man, I don't, I don't need you playing around, messing up the game with that play by play stuff." Right? Okay, I got you. Right. When I go to jail, so I got to back up. To answer that question, I got to back up. Okay. In the midst of me trying to rob this furniture store, right, I get into a shootout with the owner and his employee, right? I pull out a nine millimeter on old boy, right? And I'm telling him, hey, you know what I'm saying? Don't survive. You know what I'm saying? Don't, don't do nothing stupid. But I can see the look in this dude's eye. He's looking at me like, man, I'm not trying to hear that shit. And he rushes me. Bow, knock me down. The gun flies out my hand, right? Now I had I'm right-handed, 
but I bought a nine millimeter with a left hand safety specifically for it because most people are right-handed if you go to pick my gun up and use it on me you're gonna hit it and it's gonna shoot you you're gonna shoot yourself right so when he hits me and knocks me down i forget that it is you know and i grab it with my right hand wow and my finger right here the flesh is hanging off i'm you know so now i shoot no he goes to the desk he pulls out a super 380 and the employee pulls out a 22 rifle. So now we in here having a real live shootout in Inglewood, right down the street from the Los Angeles, from the uh, Great Western Forum, where the Lakers played at, where Chick Hearn used to call games at. We having a real live shootout, 6, 30, 7 o'clock in the morning. Bah, 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 right? I move up. I'm trying to get out, though, because I don't. it wasn't supposed to go like this. I'm trying to get out of there now. I run out of bullets. If I go this way, the way I came in, all of this side is going to be exposed. I'm going to get shot. I know that. If I go toward this other door that I've seen, I said, man, that might be a chance to get out. And there's a couple of pillars in the way. So I go that way, right? I snatch the door open. It's a bar door right there. I turn back and look, and the employee does this with the 22 rifle. Now, it's about maybe 20, 25 feet. I'm finna go. I see it. This dude, I'm, I'm gone. This is a wrap. You know, I done been on that side of the gun, so I know what time it is. I know the type of life I done led. I turn my face back to look at this sunlight that's coming in. And as I turn my face, he pulls the trigger and the bullet hits me right here on my cheekbone and slam my head into the wall. I fall down. When I wake up, I'm on the ground and he's above me with the butt of the rifle going like this. And I do this real weak. It was real feeble when I go like this. But the owner says, no, nah, don't hit him. The police are on the way. He was on the phone, right? He had called the police, right? And he tells that dude, don't hit him. The police are on the way, right? Just for a pause real quick. Everything I'm doing right now is in honor of that man not letting that man deform me. That man could have fucked me up with the butt of that rifle because my little hand up here wasn't going to stop nothing. They could have stomped me out. They could have did anything to me. But that dude was merciful to me, right? And everything I've been doing since then, once I finally, you know, cleared all the way up, was like, I got to honor this guy and show him that he made the right decision by not fucking me off that day. Wow. So when I go to the county jail, I got this big old bandage on my finger and I got a bullet still in my face. It stayed in my face for I think about two months. So I can't play basketball. So I'm up on the roof where they having the wreck at and I can't play basketball. So I start doing play by play right then. Right. Dudes is like, oh, man, this this dude right here. Is, he's good. You know what I'm saying? So, hey, man, every time they brand yard, hey, man, you coming up to the roof? Yeah, yeah, I'll be up there. I'll be up there. Yeah, man, we need you to do that play by play some more. Right. <laughs> like that. <laughs> So I go to the state prison a couple of years later and I'm on the level four yard and I go out by the basketball pole and I just start calling the games and dudes is like, Hey, look, man, it's black chick. Her, you know what I'm saying? That's baby chick. Her right there. You know what I'm saying? Hey, baby chick. Ooh, right. So, you know, this is a uh, 96 Michael Jordan is coming. He's come out of retirement, right? The bulls is, this is the first year of the, of the, of the second three peak. So you had Glenn Rice, um, uh, uh, grandma, uh, you know, you had uh, um, uh, uh, Nick Van Exel, uh, uh, 
Mm-hmm. I'm, I can't even think of all of the names that it was of during that time. Jr. Uh, 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 and what's his name? Jr. West. Jr. Reed. Jr. Ryder. You talking about Jr. Ryder? You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, he had Jr. Yeah, yeah. Ryder. Uh, Jesus Shuttlesworth had just coming to the league as well with the Bucks. You know what I'm saying? Uh, um, Ray Allen. Yeah. Right. You had all of these names. So what I'm doing on the yard is I'm giving guys those names. Right. Oh, they love Did, OK. I'm just watching their game and I'm like, OK, you this, you that, you that. Right. It took a while before I start calling somebody Jordan. But there was one person I did call Jordan. But everybody else is getting all kind of other names. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, this makes me kind of popular. You know what I'm saying? I'm healing up Islamically. I'm healing up from drugs. Right. And I'm finding a way for me to exist on the yard. Right. Mm-hmm. Also, during that time in L.A., you had a uh, ninety two point three to beat and you had John London and the house party used to be on in the mornings and stuff, you know, on your morning drive to work and whatnot. They used to do jokes and all this other stuff. And so I'm writing jokes, sending them in to them. One of them caught. They played. They They recreated it for me and played it, did all of the shouts out for me. It was something called uh, the bionic ass, but they turned it into the bionic dick, right? Just the <laughs> shit we had in the county jail, you know what I'm saying, to pass the time, you know what I'm saying? And the reason they changed the name is because, um, what's the guy, How- Howard Stern? He had, a, he had a character called Fartman back then. So the bionic ass and Fartman was too close. They was like, no, nah, we're not going to do that. We're going to change it over to the bionic dick. Right. And if you ever find any of those John Lennon in the house parties on tape or something like that on CD or whatever, you can hear it. You won't hear my voice, but you can hear the jokes that I actually wrote for them from the jailhouse. And what I was doing was even with the play by play. Right. And writing the jokes for for radio stations, I was trying to be relevant. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I took 50 years of life. I did not know when I was coming home. Right. And so I was trying to be relevant. I was literally 30 miles from Los Angeles at CA, uh, at Lancaster. So I'm hoping that my family, my spirit is still there. You know what I'm saying? And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I get real creative. You know what I'm saying? I enter into writing contests through magazines and stuff like that. Right. Later on, me writing like that became something called the show when I finally made it to a level three and I was creating basketball leagues for youngsters now. Cause at this point I'm like 41, 42 years old. Right. I've been in 13 years and my points came down. So I went to a level three, which wasn't as political as a level four, wasn't as violent as the level four. It was more fistfights than stabbings and stuff. And so by this time, I've calmed down a lot. You know, I've studied my religion. I've learned Arabic, learned Hebrew, learned a couple of different languages and whatnot in, in my pursuit of trying to get a better understanding of God. But I'm still doing play by play at every prison I go to. (laughs) And. When I get to the level three, I created a basketball league called the CBL. At the time, it was called the Convict All-Star Basketball League. First, I created a softball league and I ended up getting, I had my team, which was made up of Crips and Bloods, Christians, Muslims, dudes from up uh, Northern California, dudes from Southern California. It was real cosmopolitan, even though it was all black, but it was real. It made up the black population and we played against other teams on the yard. 
But a lot of the guys was like, hey, hey, man, let me let me get on your team. I'm like, man, it's only 10 people on the field. I got 13 people, man. Why don't you and your homies make a team? Oh, man, the homies don't want to make no team, man. Don't let them want to play no softball or nothing like that, dog. <laughs> and so me and a few other OGs got together. And I was like, look, man, you got to get your little homies to make a team and let them get out here and play ball. So those OGs went to their little homies and was like, man, y'all, y'all make a team, man, to go out there and represent, man. You know what I'm saying? And so that kind of started a change, right? Not just on the yard, but in me, because I seen the type of influence that I was having and it was positive, right? And so we got, they got all of these hoods to make their own softball team. And they did. We had 12 teams. Some of them teams sucked, man, for real. (laughs) (laughs) And some of them were really good. Right. They started practicing, you know what I'm saying? Just the way I did in the beginning with my team. They started practicing. They started really getting serious because when I made the league, each team had to put fifty dollars into a bag. And at the end of the season, the winning team got 80 percent of that bag. The other 20 percent went five percent went to me as the commissioner and 15 percent went to the umpires, the scorekeepers and everybody else that was writing about the um that was writing about the uh, the league in the newspaper I put together called The Show. Wow. That went off good. And about two weeks after that, uh, them same OGs came to me and was like, hey, man, why don't you do what you did for softball and basketball? Hell no. <laughs> I'm not doing that in basketball. These dudes already be fighting every time they out there over a call. Man, y'all want me to go out there and make a league for them? Man, you could do it, man. No, I'm not doing that. Uh-uh, hell no. Nah. Them niggas is crazy. I'm not doing that, right? <laughs> and so I prayed on it, though. I prayed on it for about two weeks, right? And they told me, they said, any rule that you make up, everybody's going to agree to. And I was like, any rule? Okay. So I put together a nice set of rules. You had, again, $25 to get into the to get into the league. Going to get 80% of it. What I promised them was I was going to do play-by-play for every game. We was going to play three games a day, five days a week, Monday through Friday. We leave the yard open on the weekend so the Hispanics and the whites can run full court, right? But we're running half court five days a week. We ended up running that, that league for three seasons. We ended up doing the softball for three seasons. And during that time, the warden, the captains, the administrators, they start giving me all kind of good guy chronos. They gave me certificates. The ward gave me a certificate calling me the commissioner, you know, and I started learning that it was more about serving other folks than it was about me. You know, I learned enough spiritual stuff, but I I learned so much spiritual stuff that I kind of got disconnected from my folks. Right. And the softball league and the basketball league got me reconnected with my folks. You know, you can get you can get so smart that you forget where you come from. Yeah. You know, and I and I went through that for a few years. I got so smart and so spiritually, you know, pure that I didn't want to be around no, nothing, you know, crazy, even though I'm doing the play by play. But when I left the play by play, I go to my cell and mind my business. When I created those leagues, I got emotionally invested with the people again, you know, and I came down off my high horse and became just like them, except that I was spiritually minded. You know, there was a brother by the name of uh, Alley Cat older brother who told me, he said, uh, you know why them youngsters respect you the way they do? I looked, I'm like, nah. <laughs> he was like, cause you just a nigga just like them. 
and they can see themselves involving into what you are. Wow. What? You just like them. And they see what they can be in you. Hmm. I'm never going to forget he told me that. Because that let me know I... I I connected back to myself, to that kid that we was just talking about from the 70s. You know what I'm saying? Who grew up learning about the Black Panther Party and understanding that the Crips and the Bloods was originally set to protect their neighborhoods. You know what I'm saying? And how it all got twisted up later on. You know, that kid who understood when we got on that bus to go to school in the Valley, that we wasn't Crips and Bloods no more, that people was looking at our skin color. You know what I'm saying? I, I connected back to that. At the same time, I grew as a more of a human being. Because even though it was about race in prison, I made it not be about race because I was constantly trying to include the whites and Hispanics in what we was doing. Even though their politics wouldn't let them do it, I still extended my hand out to them. Yeah. Right? And there's guys who were in prison with me who's going to watch this who will be like, yeah, that's exactly what he did. It's exactly what he did. So fast forward. I end up at San Quentin in 2011 and the Golden State Warriors coaching staff is coming in for the first time as a, as a team to play against the San Quentin Warriors. Now I don't know this when I hit the yard, I'm, I go do play by play like I did at every other prison. And uh, one of my partners was like, man, I'm going to introduce you to Bob Myers, man. He's the uh, general manager of the, of the Golden State Warriors. <laughs> Hey, get the fuck out of here, bitch. <laughs> Golden State Warriors general manager is coming in here to play a basketball game. <laughs> you really think I'm stupid, right? You full of shit, right? He's like, no, man, I'm telling you, I'm going to introduce you to him. So, I mean, he this is my boy. He's legit. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to take your word for it, right? Just so happens the, the first game, not the official game, but the first time Bob Myers comes in, I'm working on death row, feeding death row trays. We got to put the trays together, put the caps on them. We got to make like, folk, uh, I think, 2,000 trays that go up between death row and what was called administrative segregation, right? And so the lead man gets sick. And I'm second in line and I know the numbers. So when Bob Myers shows up, I can't go there because if I go do the game, they're not going to get fed. If they don't get fed, they're going to shut the yard down. So I don't go, right? I come out after it's over with, man, you missed Bob Myers, man. He he was here, man. I said, well, if he came once, he'll be back again. Sure enough, six months later, Bob Myers, Draymond Green, rookie for the Golden State Warriors, Mark Jackson, head coach of the Golden State Warriors, right? Festus Azili, rookie who had just got drafted, they all show up. And I stand on the sideline, just like I did from 1994 all the way till I got to San Quentin in 2012. And I'm doing play-by-play, projecting my voice, just like I did all those other years. Mark Jackson slides up to me right before halftime, and he says, hey, man, I know some dudes at ESPN. If they heard you, they would be worried about your – they would be worried about their job. What? Insane. This is hand down, man down. Mama, that go that man again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he just slid up to me and told me this. That's crazy. One of the best commentators out there, if y'all don't know. Yeah. Mm. Ex-New York Nick, ex-Indiana Pacer, ex-Los Angeles Clipper, right? Ex-St. John's street baller with a reputation in New York that goes down with Kenny Smith. Right. 
and a bunch of other names I could probably think of, Marbury and the rest of them. You know what I'm saying? Uh, 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 Pee Wee Kirkland and the rest of those cats. You know what I'm saying? He the one said this. That blew my head up. Yeah. So I got it. I got it to public information officer Sam Robinson. I said, "Hey man, I need some. I need some sound equipment." So before I could call the next Warriors game, they had a, uh, a All Star baseball game with uh, Spaceman Bill Lee. Used to be with the Cincinnati Reds, won the World Series in 76, 77, 78, somewhere through there. He's leading the team that comes into San Quentin because you also have the San Quentin A's and the San Quentin Giants baseball team up there. So. I end up doing play-by-play for the baseball game first. Goes off without a hitch. Everybody loves it. The sound equipment's out. Ooh, it's great, right? Hey, Sam, you think I can call that Warrior game? He said, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see was in 2013, and I kept doing it all the way. (laughs) Amazing. I know that's right. Goodness gracious. Yeah, so in 2016, ESPN came in into the prison and they were uh they were going to film do they were doing some type of project so i got interviewed and a couple of other san quentin warriors got interviewed in 2017 draymond green comes back with kevin durant right mm. kevin durant just got pulled away from the okc right he's a warrior now they bring him in because you know in essence you the new guy so you're gonna come to the prison and meet these guys over here they also bring marcus thompson one of the lead writers on the athletic now, I'm doing play-by-play. At halftime, somebody sneaks up on the side of me, right? Now, we in prison, bro. You, you just don't sneak up behind to the side of somebody, right? And I feel this happening, right? <laughs> and he looks at me. He says, hey, man, who are you? And... You know, I've been in San Quentin long enough to be like, well, you know, this is a great day for the prison. It gives everybody a chance to show our humanity. You know what I'm saying? And the, the community gets to come in and, and see how we are. Now, I don't want to hear that shit, man. Who are you? Where did you come from, bruh? You are great. And nobody had ever asked me that about myself specifically in that basketball program up until he asked me. So I opened up and told him about who I was. Right. A few days later, he writes a piece in The Athletic. And a third of it is about me. He said the show didn't start until this guy opened up his mouth. You know, his name is Aaron Taylor, but everybody calls him Showtime. And the following season, Kevin Durant sends a film crew in to film the movie Cue Ball, which is now playing on Tubi, right? It's a Fox Sports documentary, and it's about the 2018 season of the San Quentin Warriors, right? Mm. And they came to me and was like, man, we want you to do exactly what you was doing when we met you. We want we want you to be kind of like the ESPN. Myself, uh, Rasan Thomas, who was the sports editor of San Quentin News at the time, and another guy by the name of Nate, right, who was part of the uh, Shakespeare Club up in there, but he was real swift with his mentals. And so I called Nate, I need you over here with us, right? And so that's what we did in the movie. You know, um, I did play by play, and then we would sit and talk about Kind of like how uh, Skip Bayless and Shannon Sharp, you know what I'm saying, would go at it. We kind of did it somewhat like that, but we did that in the movie. And then COVID hit and shut the nation down. And Q-Ball played for two years on Netflix. It was the number one show on Netflix, the number one film that was being watched. You know, and people got to know about me. But the story was really about uh, Harry A.T.L. Smith, 
who had an opportunity to try out for the G League, the San Quentin Warriors G League, a week after he was released, right? Oh, wow. Yeah, he, he went straight to the G League a week after he was released. He didn't make it. He was part of like 34, 35 people tried out. They only picked three. But the man was so good inside of prison that they did give him a tryout when he got out. I didn't ran my mouth a minute. Y'all go ahead and ask a question. No, 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 no. No, no. You know your thing. This bro, bro. We, uh, no. you guys... No, I'm sitting there keep this story. What happened yeah. next? What happened next? Yeah. Keep so, going, yeah. so in two thousand in two thousand eighteen, the voters in California passed what was called Prop fifty seven. Mm. Prop fifty seven said if one of your crimes that you committed was nonviolent, then we're gonna give you action at going to the board of prison terms and sitting in front of the commissioners and see if you can get a date. Now, I I described to you guys what that robbery was back in 1994. Right, yeah. Shootout. Bullets going through uh, furniture and, you you know what I'm saying, the feathers and stuff flying up. Me getting shot in the face. You know what I'm saying? Does that sound violent to you? A little bit. Yeah. Okay. Nobody got hurt. But nobody got hurt. Well, he didn't. Not just just nobody got hurt. This is where I have to thank the founding fathers of this nation and, and, and white men in particular who wrote the laws that said that robberies were serious, nonviolent. And because they were serious, nonviolent, they changed it in 2003. But because I committed mine in 1994, I qualified Okay. As nonviolent as a nonviolent third striker, and trust me, when they sent me that piece of paper and said that you, you know, you you're going to the board, I was like, thank you, all the white men in America who did this. <laughs> oh my God, thank you. The first because time I knew, said, man, because I knew the work I did and all of the paperwork, all of the certificates, all of the all of that stuff was going to help me get out, right? Plus, I took part in some really, really deep self-help groups, like I said before we came on camera, and they helped me tap into empathy, Mm -hmm. something we get beat out of us growing up as kids. You know, shut up, boy, quit crying. Boys don't cry. Stop crying, punk. You know what I'm saying? That's killing a part of us. That's literally taking a part of our humanity away, you know, when, when stuff like that happens. And so I had to tap back into that. You know what I'm saying? And the way I tapped back into it was I had to recall when I first got robbed when I was 14 years old, right? And I had to remember all of the fear that I felt when I'm on the other side of the gun at 14. The first time I ever did school, I get robbed at the liquor store right down the street from my house. I had to remember all of those feelings. And so what I did was I took all of those feelings and I transferred them and to every person I ever committed a crime against, right? And so in essence, what I did was I took my 14-year-old self and put it into the victims of the individuals who I had robbed and harmed all my life and then looked at my 14-year-old self looking at my adult self committing these crimes. And I said, man, I ain't never doing nothing like that again because I don't want anybody to feel like that. I don't want anybody to feel that type of fear that type of uncertainty, you know what I'm saying? I peed on myself when I got robbed at 14 years old. You know what I'm saying? That was that was a traumatic event to me. But because I didn't 
even talk to my parents about it, I carried that trauma with me. That trauma is what helped me. The, the, the response to the trauma is what helped me survive growing up, but it didn't make me a full human being until I was able to walk back down the path to each of those traumatic events and then look at the decisions that I was making as an adult, not as an adult, but each decision as an adult I made, I was trying to protect that 14 year old kid. Mm. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I get you. Yeah. yeah. Tra- the definition of trauma is something that you didn't want to happen to you and something you had no control over. Right. And so when you, when you face trauma like that, if you don't have that dealt with, if you don't seek help, you become the perpetrator of trauma. Mm. Right. Yeah. Because your response is, well, if you know, I survived it. You can survive it. Yeah, that is. You know what I'm saying? Don't think deep enough about it. I survived this. You can survive it. I did it. You know what I'm saying? Because you immediately be like, you you don't really deal with the hurt, the pain, the suffering, the 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 crashing of your innocence as a child. And so, as an adult, you make decisions to protect the child even though that event doesn't happen and went past already, but now you're making decisions to protect that inner child still because you got to go back and heal that child. And so thankfully, while I was inside, I took uh, groups like Alternatives to Violence, Cage Your Rage. But the big one for me was GRIP, Guiding Rage into Power. Hmm. Guiding Rage into Power allowed us to go backward down the path to each traumatic event and look at our trauma responses versus our human responses. So we start learning phrases like emotional intelligence. You know, we start learning phrases like uh, hurt people hurt people and heal people heal people, right? There's a lot of people online talking about hurt people hurt people, but they forget about healed people healed people, you know? And so learning all of that and having all of that knowledge and the guys that I learned it from inside of prison, a lot of them are out now because we were all doing this at San Quentin together and we were all part of the basketball program. We're out now. We're out healing other people, right, mm. from the things that we know has taken place while we were gone. Yeah. But let me pause for a minute because I can see y'all face. Y'all, somebody got a question. <laughs> nah, bro, you understand. Like, you cooking. You yeah. cooking. Man, not only you cooking, it's like, you open up our eyes to a lot of things, man, because what I hate is they think when people got out of prison and doing so much time, they still got this savagery to them, which is not the case. Some people actually, like yourself, took the time to go in there and actually work. Correct. You know what I mean? Correct. Learn, was, learn, them learn them. correct what's wrong with you. Try to fix it. Try to, because, because really, you being getting, you said 25, well, 50 to life. You could have been on some shit like anybody else, man. Hell with this. I'm going to be a monster in here. Yeah. Everybody that comes through this door is going to fear me. I'm going to run this. I'm going to rule this. But instead, you took the opposite route. Like, yo, I'm going to do some, you know, I'm going to do some positive stuff with the time I'm getting. I'm not just going to be in here this ruthless mindset unless somebody probably pushes you to that. But besides that, it's like, yo, I'm just in here trying to better myself, which I, yo, bro, I well, respect. I commend you. I had help to get to that decision, right? So here's a story for you. So at Lancaster, where I first was started to play by play in state prison, right? I'm, I'm a Muslim, but I'm like 
at the time I'm like a slash Muslim. I'm, I'm Islam is my religion, but I'm kind of like still from my neighborhood at the same time. I'm straddling the fence. Right. And so I'm gambling, which is illegal in Islam. And I get this guy, he owes me some money. Right. So I push up on him. Right. Ramadan, the month, the holy month of Ramadan is coming around, show you how all of this plays out. And so in my mind at the time, I'm like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to do you a favor, brother. You know what I'm saying? Just give me your TV. Right. And we're going to call the debt even because Ramadan is coming up. And I, you know, I want to try to, you know, purify myself. <laughs> right. <laughs> he goes to his homeboys, his homeboys tell him, man, just go fire on that fool. Right. And he going to roll it up like everybody else rolls it up off the yard. Right. So I'm doing play by play like I've been doing it with my shades on. And he walks up to me like, hey, man, I really need to talk to you. Right. I'm like, man, I don't have really nothing to say to you, bro. I'm doing play by play. I need that TV in front of my cell. Right. Before you are recall. Right. He go back to his people, his people tell him, man, we told you what to do. So when he come back, he like, man, I really need to talk to you. And I do like this, man, I told you. And when I went to bring my head back, his fist is coming. <laughs> it's me and I, I got to cut on my eyelid right now. Right. Then he jumps on me. Now my eyes bleeding. He's breathing hard on top of me, talking about, man, I told you, you can't fade me. I'm like, man, when I get up, I'm finna fuck you up. Right. <laughs> But everybody sees it because I'm baby chick hern. I'm black chick hern. So everybody like, oh my God, he done fired on black chick hern, right? So I'm headed back to the building and my partner, right? He said, I'm going in there because I'm thinking I'm gonna have to stitch myself up and go get this dude. He said, No, go to go to the MTA to the hospital, tell him you got elbowed on the basketball court. I'm in there. I tell them that they look at me like, yeah, okay, you got elbowed on the basketball court. Well, let's fix his, let's fix his eyelid and everything, right? When I come out the MTA's office, every Muslim that could get out the building is out there in front of the hospital waiting on me, right? Including the leader of the Muslims, right? And so when I come out, everybody's fired up like, man, who did this? Woo, woo, woo. But the imam looked at me and said, hey, man, why did he hit you? Man, it don't matter why he hit me, man. Ain't nobody going to hit a Muslim and get away with it around here. Okay. But why did he hit you? I'm just saying, man, you know, ain't, ain't nobody supposed to be able to hit a Muslim and get away with it. He said, I'm going to ask you one more time, man. Why did that man hit you? Well, uh, you know, I you know, I was, I, I know gambling, we ain't supposed to gamble, right? But I was gambling just a little bit, right? And so, like, man, you're not finna do nothing to him. I'm like, what? He said, man, you're not finna do nothing to him, man. You was gambling. That's punishment from a law on you right there, right? Leave it alone. I'm like, man, I'm steaming, right? Because my ego, yeah. I'm on level four yard, right? I feel violated. This is all my feelings. I feel violated. I feel like this fool trying to punk me. So what I do, I go to a couple of my homeboys from my old demonstration and I tell them, man, I got told I can't do nothing to this fool, man. I need y'all to get that fool for me, right? So while the head of the Muslim community is over talking to the head of this dude's car, telling him that everything is squashed out on the yard. I got my homeboys hailing this dude. Now the head of security for the Muslim community is my boy. He comes out and he sees it. He like, man, what are you doing? I said, man, ain't nobody going to hit no Muslim around here and get away with it, man. Period. Point blank. Right. So that night <laughs> we go to the chapel because I got an issue coming. Right. Because I didn't I didn't broke protocol. Okay, cool. Just like I took that 50 to life, I'm going to take whatever punishment I got coming, right? Ooh. So my boy comes in. He says, hey, man, you know, 
uh, at, when Ramadan is over with, you know, you're going to get an issue, right? I'm like, man, I'm, what am I, a kid? I got to wait till Ramadan is over, man. I, you give me my issue right now, right? He looked, he said, man, do you know what you're saying? I, said, I don't care. Okay, what you saying? So I end up going in the back room in the chapel with three of the biggest Muslims on the yard. I have these guys, <laughs> six, three, six, four, six, six, right? The smallest one I think is about 200 pounds. The biggest brother is like 280, right? Now, mind you, I look slim now, but back then I was fat. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and out of shape, right? <laughs> The head of the Muslims come in. He's the, the, my boy tell him, he said, man, he don't want to wait for his punishment. He said he wanted now. He looked at me. He said, what? I said, man, you heard what he said, man. Whatever punishment I got, come and give it to me right now. You know, hard. You know, He said, man, get his food three sets of 60 seconds, man, and then get him out here so he can pray with the rest of us. I'm like, what is 60 seconds, right? <laughs> I'm curious. I had to do 28-count burpees. And in between the eight count burpees, it was 60 seconds of each one of them, one at a time, going at my body from my neck to my waistline. If I go to punch back, all three of them is going to down me, right? Now, I could block, right? I can bob and weave, but I can't punch back, right? So he steps out. Uh, the first brother, 6'3", he like, you heard what he said, get started with them burpees, man, so we can get this thing. Now, I don't know if you know what burpees are, but eight count burpees is hard to do. <laughs> Mind you, again, I'm like 280 pounds, out of shape. All I'm doing is doing play-by-play play every day, right? I'm not doing nothing else, right? So after I finished that first set of burpees, he'd go to work on my <laughs> Then the next one, I got to do 28-count burpees. And the next one, who's a little bit bigger. <laughs> now we get to the last one. I got to do this last set. I'm hurting. I'm in pain. Like, man, you talk that mess, get on, get on, get it done. Right. Now, mind you, the whole Muslim community is outside on the rug waiting on me. They can hear all of the rumble and tumbling going on like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> the two dudes who I had to my two homeboys who I said, man, y'all go take care of that for me. They sitting out on the rug because I told them I told them, no, y'all can't do nothing because I told them to do it. And they didn't know the order that was given to me. Right. So they don't bother them. They said not there. They want to get them, but they like, no, nah, I'm taking accountability for them. Right. The last brother is lifting me off the ground with his punches. Right. Hurry up and wash yourself up so we can go out here and pray. Right. This is sinking now. Wash up. Right. They open up the door and everybody's looking at me like this. Right. <laughs> Because they didn't hurt them, right? I go fall in the ranks. They crush you in in, in prayer, right? I'm like, they squeezed on me. I'm like, oh, shit. Mm, 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 mm. So we do the first Allah. Allah, who I, oh, oh. I heard. It's me, Allah, Rahman, Rahim, Allah, who I, oh. I fall out, right? I, they take me back into the office and lay me across three chairs, right? I'm laying there like, oh, oh. Hurt. The man comes in, he leans in my ear. He said, uh, we ain't gonna have to do this again, are we? I said, No, sir. Nope, nope, nope. nope. We ain't, we're not gonna have this ever conversation ever again, bro. Yeah. <laughs> something real good, yeah. That was the ass whooping that I should have got on the street. 
Had I got that ass whooping on the street, I wouldn't have got it in prison. But I was so headstrong. I was so into myself. You can't tell me nothing. I got a strap. I'm going to take what I want. And I don't care what nobody say. Now I finally ran up into a place where I got the discipline that I needed. That ass whooping helped get me on the right path. <laughs> and sometimes the right ass whooping will change your path. That's what we need. <laughs> what he said. So if we fast forward, when you get when you get out, right? Mm-hmm. What leads to you doing? What leads to you working with the Warriors? So the movie Cue Ball is crazy. <laughs> the movie Q Ball, we had a team called the Green Team that used to come in, right? Uh, prison Sports Ministry. One of the guys in Prison Sports Ministry knew the president and CEO of the Venice Basketball League, right? And he's telling me, like, man, this dude up in here, man, is really, really good, right? So uh, the guy who does the play-by-play and public announcement for Venice Basketball League, Mouthpiece, right? They go to him and tell him, when I, you know, this guy's getting ready to come out of prison, Mouthpiece, man, I love this brother, man. That's that's my dog, man. That that's my brother, right? He he could have said, nah, man, I don't nah. This is my spot. But he said, nah, man. He heard about my story. He said, man, let this brother in, give him an opportunity, right? And so a month after I'm out, I got a camera in my face because they're filming a documentary. This is all on YouTube. I should have sent y'all that link, but uh it's all on YouTube, Venice Basketball 2020, right? I come out a month out and Excuse me. We're at Dotweiler Beach. I'm doing play by play into the camera. Mouthpiece is doing public address where everybody else can hear. So the guys couldn't actually hear me until the tape comes out on YouTube. And they like, man, this dude right here. Right. So that's how we did it for about six weeks. Right. Dotweiler, Long Beach, Huntington Beach. And then we ended the last game in Watts. After the last game in Watts, I'm over at the Slauson Swap Meet something you can see in what in the movies and i'm on the phone talking to somebody well i don't know that the guy that just walked past me is one of the commissioners of the aba he's in there getting some jerseys made and he he hears me talking about the movie cue ball and so he's like hey man you was in that movie cue ball i'm like yeah i was doing the play-by-play he's like man i've been trying to catch up to harry atl smith man i want him in the league so I said, hold on. Hey, let me call you back. I call ATL up on, on Facebook Messenger. I'm like, here, man, talk to this guy. And they talk. When they get off the phone, he like, man, do you want to call games for the ABA? Hell yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So now I'm called. I went from the Venice Basketball League to the American Basketball Association. February 2021. NBA All-Star Game is on, uh, I forget what date, but it's on Sunday. That Friday... I'm at the Mamba Academy in Calabasas calling the ABA All-Star Game, play-by-play, right? I distinctly remember telling my nieces, hey, we we really just did something significant right now. They was like, what you mean? I said, this is the ABA. I just called the All-Star Game for the ABA. This is huge. 48 hours later, I get an email from the Golden State Warriors, from Raymond Ritter, the public relations man. Get the email. It says, uh, hey, Aaron, my friend, uh, I got an opportunity for you. I know you do play by play, but we got an opportunity for you to do public address for the Houston Rockets Golden State Warriors game. Are you interested? Uh, what? Hold on. Let me. I scroll all the way to the bottom, right? I see all of the, you know, all of the championships and the logo and everything. I scroll back again. I'm looking. I read. I was like, oh, shit. I just made it to the damn NBA, right? 
bust out crying, right? I'm like, man, all of that hard work, you know what I'm saying? All of that hard work, everything I did inside, I thought all the way back, man, to when I was in the L.A. County Jail, to when I was in Lancaster, calling them games for all them dudes, Calipatra State Prison, Sitinella State Prison, Soledad State Prison, and San Quentin State Prison, man. I thought about all of them cats, right? And so when I caught the plane, I got them all in my heart with me. I take them all up there with me. I take them in that arena with me, right? They told me I couldn't do play-by-play. They just said do public address, but they also told me, please bring Showtime. And so that's what was on ESPN that night. Everybody got a bar of Showtime. And then I'm thinking it's over with at the end of the game, right? I'm gathering my stuff up, right? I'm like, man, this is cool, right? I, I just did this, right? And then Steph Curry comes over. I seen coming, right? And I'm like, damn, baby face assassin, right? Yeah. Walk up, tell him in his ear, I'm like, hey, man, if you ever get the opportunity, man, go to San Quentin State Prison, man. Them dudes love you over there, man. You know, this is the Bay Area, you know what I'm saying? This is, they love you, man. You know what I'm saying? They would really appreciate if you showed up, right? And he said, man, okay, I hear you. He said, but I got something I want you to do. I'm like, what? He's, I want you to come do this post-game interview with me. What? Okay, cool. So I go over. Dude asked me, you know, he's like, man, it's killing it, all this other stuff, right? He was like, this is your moment. It's Hollywood. And I just remember telling him, no, nah, I worked hard in 26 years to change myself around. You know, I worked hard. And uh, there's no way that I could be here, right? I'm saying this to y'all. There's no way I could be here without those guys in there. Without that ass whooping in 98. Without that man, without that man stopping that guy from hurting me. When I tried to rob his store, tried to kill him and his employee. They they showed me mercy. It was merciful for me to get my ass whooped in 98 to help me get on the right track. It was merciful for me to dive into my religion and still do play by play. It was merciful when I created those basketball and softball leagues and started giving of myself because I knew I had to change my karma around because I did so much wrong to come to prison. You stop at a certain point, you pivot. And it's like, man, I got to put some good energy out. So I start putting good energy out. And this was all part of that. Next thing I know, man, I'm getting calls from the Kelly Clarkson show, from Maria Taylor on NBA Countdown from Fern Glenn up at KPIX, from Kate Rooney and Jay Dumas over at Crime 4. You know, uh, Festus Azili has a podcast called Rebuilding the Beast. He calls me in. Uh, Corey Ellis, uh, Corey Oliver from Corey Ellis Effect calls me in. You know, I start doing the podcast and stuff. And then um, I got an opportunity to do the intros and outros for the 42nd Annual Sports Emmy Awards, you know, and they have a piece in there with, um, I can't think of the guy's name right now, but um, I think of it, Jim Gray. Jim Gray did a piece on me. They had him narrate a piece on me for about a minute and a half, right? And um, then 
in May 2021, a couple of months after all of this stuff started calming down, I started my own Instagram live podcast called Heart in the Paint. Right. And so since I made these connections inside, I'm bringing these people in on a live with me. Right. And we chopping it up. And eventually in September 2021, I had Bob Myers from the Golden State Warriors come on to my line. You know, he's at the he's at the stadium, at the practice stadium. He turns the camera around so everybody could see Clay Thompson because he was he was coming back from his foot injury. Right. And so a couple of months after that, I signed up with Coin Media. This guy right here, the boy Macca, right? Coin Media Group, world famous Coin Academy. And uh, he put me under contract to where I went in the studio doing hard in the paint now, Fire. right? And not only am I doing hard in the paint, I'm still doing play by play for basketball, but I'm also doing Friday night fades. I'm calling boxing matches as well, right? Mm. Blow for blow. Yeah, definitely. With uh, rough boxing. Team Watson boxing out here in Southern California. A lot of the fighters from Friday Night Phase are now turning pros. They're having their pro debuts, right? Yeah, this is, uh, my life is weird. My life is weird. Um, I've done things in the past, right, that I'm definitely not proud of, right? Uh, I talk about it the way I talk about it because I'm not that person anymore, Uh right? Um, And this would be a good time for me to talk about in 1992, on April the 29th, when the verdicts came in from the uh, from the trial of the assault on Rodney King, um, I'm in front of First AME Baptist, uh, First AME Church over on 20, 20th and uh, 22nd in Hobart in L.A. And that's when I make the statement that ends up on track three of the chronic. Track four. Is, the, is track the, four, uh, right. Track four, yeah. I was listening to it. I'm going to say this and I'm going to end mine. If you ain't down for the Africans here in the United States, period, point blank, if you ain't down for the ones that suffered in South Africa from apartheid and shit, then you devils need to step your punk ass to the side and let us brothers and us Africans step in and put some foot in that ass. That statement came from the ancestors. I've really had time enough to think about it because the whole time I'm in prison, all the way up to like 2012 at the 20th anniversary of the uh, of the riots, I don't tell nobody about this stuff. Dudes be lying in prison about everything. If I'd have said that, I'd have been, you know, you, come on, man, that ain't you. So I don't even talk about it. But in 2012, while I'm at San Quentin, the anniversary comes around and my face is all over TV now, you know, and I got people specifically guards coming to me. Hey, Taylor, was you ever in a documentary? I've been in several documentaries. No, I'm talking about a documentary dealing with the riots in 1992. Like, yeah, I was, I was, I was, <laughs> I was in that. Like, yeah, man, you all over TV, you know, I'm like, what? And then I got guys coming up to me on the yard, man, I seen you on TV. That's you. You made that statement. So in 2014, I finally go on YouTube in the cell, you know, underneath the covers on my cell phone. And I see the video of me saying it. I'm like, oh shit. Right. Fast forward. I'm out of jail. Right. Now I'm letting people know that that's me. So Jay Quan from the Hip Hop Museum, he talked to me about it. We haven't really sat down and had an interview, but they know who I am. Dr. Dre knows who I am, but I'm not seeking any money from that. You know what I'm saying? Like I said, that came from the ancestors, man. There's no way in the world I could put a price tag on that. You know, I don't care how much money they made on it. You know, and I get people look like, what? I, I could Listen, man, if I could put a price tag on that, right? If they want to give me something, cool. 
I don't want them to give me nothing. I'd rather work on a project with them. Yep. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That that's yeah. immortalized. I'm so honored and so humbled that out of all the footage that they got, and I'm pretty sure they had footage that they took my statement and put it at the start of that song. And for 30 years, the whole time I was in prison and since I've been home, niggas been setting it off. When something happened, they pulled that song out. Wow. Damn. When something happened, wow. they pulled that one out. Look, this dude is finna get us turned up. Don't say this in my head, man. If you ain't down for the jet, this, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, this, like, let's go. History. I can't put a for price real. tag on that, so I'm not gonna try to. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm 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 humbled that that album is seen as one of the top five all time hip hop albums in the 50 year history of hip hop. Yeah. I'm so humbled that I got chosen. My voice was chosen yeah. to lead that track off that I can't put a price tag on that, man. It's, it's no price on that. Would I appreciate you know, somebody wanted to work with me because of that? Of course. Would I appreciate if they wanted to invest in hard and to paint my pocket? Of course. But that statement, I don't, I, don't I, I can't put a price on that because that came from a place where my ancestors was using me as a vessel to speak out. You know, and I, I can't put a price on that. I don't, I don't, I would feel stupid if they tried to give me some like, hey man, we want to give you a million dollars for that. Well, but you know, actually that starts the conversation where, you know, you guys made a whole bunch of money off of that. A million dollars. You, nah, if you want to break me off, cool. I, I'll accept that. You know what I'm saying? But I would rather have somebody invest in me. You know, yeah. Yeah. I'd rather have them invest in me, not just, you know, not any other thing like you owe me. I'm not, they don't owe me anything for that. Uh, bro, you've been a part of like your story, like you've been a part of a lot of stuff in history, bro. Like, yeah, it's just yeah. crazy. Definitely. That's why we've been sitting back and all just listening because, very yo, man, your story is is beautiful, man. Just from a brother to black brother to brother, like I gotta say, bro, I love you, man, and I appreciate you know you changing your life around the way you did, man, and and. I love that you bring positivity. Like I said, most dudes that go in there they come back out with the negative shit or they go yeah. or they been there a long time and they just stay on the negative shit, bro. I'm I love all the my fact dudes. that you Yeah. All my dudes that was in that's getting out now, ninety eight percent of them are like me. Ninety eight percent went in, thugged out, I don't do a fuck about shit. And now we come out as healers. Yeah. That that 1994 through 2001 period, 85% of black men who was in the street got arrested, right? And given a bunch of time. Now, yeah, we was thugs, we was criminals, we was, you know, dirt bags, piece of shits. We was, you know, robbing and stealing and doing what we was doing. But that wasn't all we was doing, right. you know? See, I definitely remember telling the youngsters in my neighborhood, hey, man, you can't be out here with me. Take your ass to school. You know, I'm pretty sure that when y'all was young, there was somebody, if you was trying to hang out in the street, there was somebody like me telling you, get your ass in school. You The streets ain't for you, right? And then they was gone. Yeah. When that happened, the guys, 85% leave. 
So the guys who couldn't come out when we was out, they flooded the streets. They became the role models. They became the OGs. They became the individuals that the sisters who was attracted to the guys that left. Now they trying to pick and choose from these guys that just start coming out the house. Right. So when you start to imagine and you start to calculate or you start to see where I'm going with this. The guys that replaced us were the guys who couldn't come out when we was out. It was 15% real niggas and 85% dudes who was trying to figure it out themselves, who could finally come out in the streets now, right? Mm -hmm. And I like to use the Lion King as an analogy because you had Scar who hooked up with the hyenas, right? Mm -hmm. Scar wanted to be the head of the lions, but he just didn't have it. Right. But when all of the lions got killed off, now the pride is looking for the head lion. And who's left? Scar. Scar's telling them female lions, I'm the only game left in town. You don't do what I say, these hyenas is going to be on your ass. If you remember, Scar kept saying, man, look, if we get rid of the lions, the hyenas, you know, the lions is keeping people from doing what they want to do. You know what I'm saying? Give the hyenas a chance. What happened from 1994 to 2020? Shit's out of control. It, it's, yo, what you're saying is facts. Because growing up as a kid, it was dudes on the corner, but like, yo, your grandma know you out here? Take your ass home. Yeah. Now it's like, my, like my son, I got a son that's 16 right now. And he's want to follow kids a couple years older than them doing dumb shit in the street. But if you, somebody really rolled up on them kids, it's like, yo, they, they ain't really about that life. They don't want that that's why they so quick to, that's why they so quick to shoot other than the fight. You know what I'm saying? That's so, that, that's why they got that mentality. Cause they, that's a scary mentality. And I and I always had that thought in the back of my mind. It's like, yo, I wonder did the government, maybe not, but they systematically took these dudes that were forced to be in these positions in the street, who didn't really want to be there, but was there because of their circumstances. Like, did they take them out the way to let these dudes who can't who can go to school, who can be have a good life, but instead they want the, the street life? Like that, that's how I look at it. There, there's a there's an addition, there's an episode of 60 Minutes, a segment in there where they took the old bull elephants, right, sent them to a whole nother country and then left these young male bull elephants to really just raise themselves. So now when the old bull elephants was there, they would teach them, they was teaching the younger ones what trees to eat from. You know what I'm saying? They taught them like the space between humanity and the jungle where they was at, right? They taught them how to move through the land. So when they took the old bull elephants away, the young bull elephants start attacking the people. They start attacking the wildebeest. They even start attacking the lions and whatnot because they didn't have no guidance, yeah. right? When they finally killed the human, so okay, wait a minute, wait, wait, we got we to gotta do something about this. Now this is like four, four years that went by, right? So they went and got some old male bull elephants, darted them, boop, 
brought them and put them back in the pack. Right now, the head of the young bull, the head of the young elephants, he's flapping his ears and making a whole bunch of noise. And the old bull is looking at him like, what's that? You know, and then he end up whooping the head of the youngster's ass. <laughs> and then the other ones ranked up and started following the old male bull and the old male bull reestablished Nature. the boundaries. He reestablished everything. You see what I'm saying? And so now I'm not saying that we're out here doing that literally, but what we are doing since we've come home and a lot of us are doing this, we're out showing that what was perceived as leadership, having money, having subordinates, having people do what you tell them to do. Just because you had a lot of money and you had a lot of jewelry and a lot of material things, that isn't what it's about. It's really about your character your honesty, your humility, your accountability, your integrity, and your responsibilities, right? I call that a chair, C-H-A-I-R, right? And you don't need money, right, to have this, right? Because this helps you with your loyalty. This helps you with your morals, right? This helps you with your, your, your perspective and guidance, right? Money only uh, enhances whatever you are, right? So if you was a POS, when you get money, you just going to be a POS with money, right? Mm -hmm. right? But if your character, if you honest and, and you humble, if you accountable, if you have integrity and you have responsibility, then the money isn't going to change that, right? You don't know if I'm broke or not. I've been homeless in the past three years since I was home, Right. Even after I had my show, I went homeless, but I'm not, you don't know that unless I tell you that because I'm not on the internet with money in my hand. I'm not trying to attract people like that. I'm trying to attract people with my honesty, my character, my integrity. The things I do in private is the same things I do online. Right. I'm the same person. I don't need to be fake for anybody, right? I did 26 years, three months and three weeks, 9,549 days in prison. I've been tested. Yeah. I've been, my metal has been tested. I've been under live gunfire. You know what I'm saying? My right and my left hand was my girlfriend's for 26 years, three months and three weeks. So the things that guys are like distracted by out here, you know, titties and ass shaking up, that stuff is, I mean, I'm, I'm engaged. You know what I'm saying? I don't I don't trip on that stuff. What I'm tripping on is the focus that it takes for me at 58 years old to try to achieve what I'm trying to achieve, which is to be the first formerly incarcerated person to call an NBA finals. And I hope it go all seven games. I want to be signed to a team or I want to be signed to a network. And everything I'm doing since I've been home is in pursuit of that goal. Right. Mm. It got a lot closer with the help of the Warriors, it got closer when I got signed to Coin Media Group and the boy Maka, who I wear on my shirt right here, it got closer. But even, even if I don't do it, if for some reason I don't get to call the NBA Finals, everything I'm doing in pursuit of that, right, is a testament to the individual who was released, not to the person who came in. Right. My boy Maserati E, who's over at uh, the Last Mile Radio Program. Erline Woods, who has Ear Hustle, right? We got like 10,000 downloads a month, right? Um, 
my boy Fatine Jackson, who goes back inside of prisons, my boy Rafael Cuevas, who's the coach in the movie Q-Ball, goes back into prisons. We go back into prisons to help free people from the prison here before they physically get released. This is what we're doing. When I reached out to you guys, I reached out to y'all because I saw y'all podcast. I'm like, man, them brothers up there got something going on. We reach out to them, man, and see if they will allow me to come up there and run my mouth for about an hour or two. <laughs> we appreciate it. We uh, yeah, we appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. It was like, really? But, okay. But you guys are a testament. You guys are a testament to not being caught up in the fluffery that's out here. Mm, right. You know, you guys are a testament to what it means to the, everything I just said, because you can't do the job you're doing if you don't have the things I just said. That means a lot. Yeah, it does. Thank you, bro. We appreciate that, man. Yes, we do. We we've been trying hard. I mean, just to stay true to ourselves and figure out, you know, exactly. I mean, it's it really due to that Kev up top, you know, telling us, yo, we just got to make sure we us and bring the truth of ourselves to the podcast and help people bring their truths on here and you know just vibe with everybody and and vibe with each other. So, yeah, I mean, I would love to have y'all on hard in the paint. And let me oh, interview yeah. you guys. Hey. Right? Hell because yeah. I know my personal story is interesting. But as the as the the uh the person who's the host of Heart in the Pain, everybody has a story. Everybody has something unique about them, right? Each one of y'all has done something that we can we can flush out in an interview with just me asking just two questions. And then it'll just come out and start rolling out. When I interview the people that come on my show are, again, reporters that I met while I was inside. Interviewed a young lady by the name of Danielle Harvey. She's a professional football player, tackle football player. Yeah. Oh, wow. I interviewed a sister by the name of Janine. She's 60 years old. She's about to get a psy-op degree. It's not a PhD, but it's, a, it's for psychiatry, right? She didn't start going to college till she was 50-something, and it took her six years to get to this point. Many of you, a young uh, uh, Filipino lady by the name of Villavon. She's a, a CEO of a media company down in San Diego. I interviewed Marcus Thompson from The Athletic. I interviewed Festus Azili, right? Former Golden State Warrior, former champion, right? I interviewed Mike Talajian, who was the executive producer and director of the movie Q-Ball, right? I interviewed many people from the Venice Basketball League on Instagram Live and in the studio, right? Thanks to Coin Media, man, where I'm at now, man. This brother right here, man, he did time as well. And most of the people that work up in there did time. He has a vision, right? Kind of like what you guys have, but his vision is, man, we're going to take these people and show people what the best is coming out of prison. Wow. What the best is. And the people that I'm in the studio with, my, 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 I call them stable mates, Yuckmouth from the loonies. Rizza Islam. Mm. Um, uh, Corey Holcomb, Craig Smith, right? These are the guys that are in the studio with me. Dire, Dire Lansky. These guys are signed in the Coin Media Group, and I'm a part of that, right? I look up to those guys, and I learn from them. I I, I learn uh, techniques from them. I learn how they approach the game and whatnot. And then I'm learning also from the boy Maka, right? And it's 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 it's. I have to remember that I'm 58 years old biologically, but up here. I'm still 28, 29, 30 years old. 
Yeah. Right. So people look at me and they, yeah. damn, you look young to be 58, brother. You still look like you 38, 39, 40. Well, yeah, I definitely feel that way, except some days I wake up and that arthritis kicks in. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> oh, my God. That's how I go. <laughs> I go to make a move, right? Me and my girl, right? We'd be the, you know, handle our business right the next day. Oh, God damn. What the hell? <laughs> Tylenol, my hip is hurt. <laughs> That's how you know I interviewed uh, Dante Santiago, one of the founding members of the Black Eyed Peas. Right. That's my girl's brother. Right. I've had him on the show. We sat down and had a nice long conversation. Another sister by the name of Denise Malpin, who had did time in prison and now is she has a B.A., a A.A. And I forget what other degree she has, but she speaks on uh, domestic violence, healing from that. Right. She speaks eloquently. Right. On what it means to be uh, a black woman. And she's definitely a frontliner. She's definitely with BLM. But she speaks on her experience as a black woman, right? I've had all kinds of people. I would love to have y'all come on. Either we do it this way, or if you're ever out here in California, bring you into the studio and we sit down and we just chop it up, man. You know what I'm saying? On what it's like to be three young black men, right? In the opinionated podcast, and what was the idea behind it? How did y'all grow up? The same way that y'all asking me and let me run, I'm going to sit and add, let you run. Right, we want to do that definitely. Yeah, 100%, that would be 100%. Dope. Hey man, send the email, dog. <laughs> I wasn't doing it personally. Honestly, yeah, I, yeah. I don't want to go to San Diego and do it. Uh, um, we're about to wrap this thing up. So, okay. how we do at the end of our podcast? We already been letting you run your mouth, but still, we want you to tell everybody, and we're gonna be quiet where they can find you at, how to find you. When your podcast air everything, this is all you. This is just we got you. Blow it up. That's what we love to do here. We love to let everybody else shine. You know what I'm saying? So, so hard in the paint is on all podcasts of platforms. The audio version of it, right? Spotify, all of them, right? Uh, you can see it on my logo, hard in the paint. Hold on, let me put that up here. Oh no, it's not here. Okay, there it is. You can see the logo right there, hard in the paint. Right when you go on the podcast platforms, that's where I'm at. Um, you can see find me on Instagram at Aaron Showtime Taylor and my other page, Hard in the Paint, with a period between hard and the paint. It's a period up in there. You can find me on TikTok, where I have my biggest following, 21,000 supporters and followers over there. And that is Uncle Daddy Grandpa, no D in the grandpa. Right. That's a whole nother story I can go into. Trust me. That's a whole nother story right there. That developed once I came home and my niece gave me that name. Uh, YouTube, Aaron Showtime Taylor. Twitter X, uh, at Rebirth of Chick, all one word. Chick being short for Chick Hearn, the, 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 the individual man who I imitated for so long and, and then I broke away from imitating him and just kept some of his euphemisms but became Aaron Showtime Taylor off of that. Um, I, I think I got a LinkedIn as well, and that would be on the Aaron Showtime Taylor and AaronShowtimeTaylor.com, where you can see the video of the audio of Hard in the Paint, right? We got to put some new stuff up there, but um, I'm just out here. I've been out 41 months now, you know, and trying to make a name for myself, building my brand up. And I appreciate anybody who wants to invest in me, anybody who wants to, you know, help me advertising with advertising dollars, 
Uh, like I said, if if Dre or anybody over at Death Row with Snoop, any of them want to work with me or any rapper, right, wants to work with me on what I said back in 1992, man, you can catch me at Aaron Taylor 5822 at gmail.com. That's A-A-R-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R 5822 at gmail.com or Aaron Showtime Taylor at gmail.com. And um, I'm open, man, for work, right? And I'm open for people who want to talk. Any youngsters want to get at me? Any OGs want to get at me? I'm not tripping, man. I'm just happy to be free, and I have no plans on going back to jail ever again. <laughs> nah, man. Five, sure, yes. Man. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, them 26 years. Them 26 years was enough, bro. I'm, I'm like, again, these two. Yeah, they. Uh-uh, I'm cool now. Nah, <laughs> <laughs> I'd be over here talking. I'd be like, man, I'm getting tired of you. Hey, what's happening? Hey, yo. That one might be a little prettier that day. I don't know. Yeah, ambidextrous. Man. 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 I'm I'm so happy to be engaged, you know what I'm saying, and 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 being with one woman, you know what I'm saying? Sharon Santiago is beautiful, you know what I'm saying? Not just outside, but on the inside, right? And she allows me to be me. You know, and I couldn't ask for anything more, man, at, at the age that I am, you know what I'm saying, to, to have somebody like that standing by my side. Yeah. That's beautiful, yeah, we, man. Amazing. We all lucky men over here. So, man, listen, man. Oh, man I can tell by y'all faces, man. <laughs> y'all like, man, this dude, this old motherfucker got a punch. Hey, man, listen. <laughs> but, but yo man we we gonna wrap this up um like i said this episode awesome. everybody this the live is gonna air on tuesday and i got all your information i'm gonna make sure that when we put our stuff up on spotify all the links that you gave us everything it's gonna be there so everybody can get at you man listen we appreciate you bro like yeah this was yeah, this, this was, was a dope ass episode man this we really appreciate you bro crazy stuff. y'all y'all have done I've been watching y'all for about six months. Oh, about fire. six months, you know, and 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 I decided, you know, <laughs> I decided I'm like, hey man, let me let me reach out to these brothers right here, man. We you know, these, these, we were these are solid brothers. Y'all have some conversations, right? Now I don't agree with everything y'all say, right? But that's the beautiful part about it. I don't have to agree with everything you say to respect what you're saying. Yeah, you know what I'm saying, but but y'all wow, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we like to have a good time. We got the book of cam going, you know. That so. means a lot, actually. Yeah, that, it does. We really appreciate. That's that. the whole point, though. The whole point is for people to have their own opinion. You don't have to agree with us. We respect what you say. You respect what we say, and we are good. You know. Yeah, it's, it's again. I, I watched for six months before I reached out, and I'm like, okay, these 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 are the cats right here. Man. I'm, I'm I'm gonna hit them up right. At first, I hit all ball, right. We gonna talk basketball over there, but then we he wanted to hear my story too. Everybody wants to hear my story, but I be wanting to hear y'all stories. <laughs> Yeah, we're down to come on the show for sure. Man, I, I appreciate y'all giving me this time, man. I appreciate the live, man. I appreciate everything that just took place, and hopefully, we can build from this. Yes, yeah, of course. Right. Building is the key for sure. Yeah. Like I always like to do, they hate that I do it, but we out, man. Appreciate your time. Peace. They hate when I do that. They hate that I say peace to everybody. Man, peace. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Painated Podcast. If you love today's episode, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, five stars. We don't want nothing less. If you're an artist, actress, a songwriter, an author, or you're doing something that's interesting and you want to be a guest on our show, 
please email us at opinionatedpodcastddk at gmail.com. That's opinionatedpodcastddk at gmail.com. Thank you. Have a blessed day.